turn with me please to the book of Job, chapter 8. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 514, and in the large print Bibles, 793. Job, chapter 8. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of the context. Job's life has been devastated, completely devastated. And his three friends have come to help him. Initially, they did that by sitting with him in silence. They wept with him. And eventually, Job himself was the one who broke the silence. And he poured out a torrent of despair. I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. At that point, Job's three friends could not be silent anymore. They're a team. All of them are of one mind. And they decide Job needs to be confronted with some basic truths. At least the three friends believe that they're basic truths. At the end of the book, God tells us the three friends are wrong. But God has not made that announcement yet. So the three friends give Job what they believe are the key issues that he needs to face up to. Eliphaz spoke first in chapter 4. That may have been because he was the oldest and therefore the most senior of these three wise men. And he started very politely. He said, look Job, we love you. We feel for you. But we all know You reap what you sow. And you have reaped a whole lot of tragedy and evil. So the thing to do, Job, is to take a hard look at yourself. Own up to whatever sin you've been hiding. Respond properly to God's discipline and he'll put your life back together again. Now when we looked at Eliphaz's words, We notice that we do reap what we sow. But, when tragedy and evil strike our lives, it is not always because we have been sowing evil. It may be, but not always. We saw that we can sow good and not reap blessing for a long time. In fact, we may not reap blessing until the end, when Christ returns. And in the meantime, it is possible to sow good and experience lots of evil and suffering in our lives. In situations like that, the suffering is not reaping. And it's not God's discipline. It has come for some other reason. And that is the case with Job. We've seen this book goes to great lengths to tell us Job is in the right with God. He is not sinless, but he is blameless. What's the difference? How can you sin and be blameless? The answer is, you take your sins to God. You seek his mercy. And that's what Job did. Chapter 1 told us, Job made use of the means of atonement God had provided. At Job's time in history, that meant bringing animal sacrifices. That was the way God provided 
for people to acknowledge their sin and plead for his mercy. The worshipper was asking God to accept the death of the sacrifice in their place as their substitute. That's what people were doing when they brought sacrifices. It wasn't some strange and pointless ritual. When it was done sincerely, God promised to show mercy and forgive. So Job dealt with his sin in God's way. And therefore, Job stands blameless before God. He is not sinless, but he is blameless. He's in the right with God. God has nothing against him. God himself announced that at the beginning of the book. And all of that means Eliphaz was wrong. Job's suffering is not the harvest of his sin. Eliphaz has a view of the world that's way too neat and tidy. It doesn't fit Job's situation. Well, how did Job respond to Eliphaz? In chapter 6, he spoke to all three of the friends and he demanded that they produce evidence, if they had any. Just don't dump your theory on me, he said. If you're so sure there's sin in my life, point it out to me then. Otherwise, Job said, be quiet and show me some genuine sympathy. Take the time to listen properly to me. Look at my situation, even if it doesn't fit your theory. Then in chapter 7, Job turned from the three friends and he began to share a piece of his mind with God. He wished God would either take his life or leave him alone. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Friend number two, having listened to all that from Job, decides that he had better enter the discussion. And so we're going to begin reading at chapter 8, verse 1, and we'll read through to the end of chapter 9. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rise himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble. So prosperous will your future be. Ask the former generations and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing. And our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold. They're like a well-watered plant in the sunshine, spreading its roots over the garden. 
It entwines its roots around a pile of rocks and looks for a place among the stones. But when it is torn from its spot, that place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away and from the soil other plants grow. Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hands of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more. Then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? Though they wished to dispute with him, they could not answer him once in a thousand times. His wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves the mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice... Who can challenge him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Although I am blameless. I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. They skim past like boats of papyrus, like eagles swooping down on their prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint, I will change my expression and smile, I still dread all my sufferings. For I know you will not hold me innocent. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I washed myself with soap and my hands with cleansing powder, you would plunge me into a slimy pit so that even my clothes would detest me. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only... There were someone to mediate between us. Someone to bring us together. Someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. 
But as it now stands with me, I cannot. This is God's word. And if we're looking for the problem this passage is dealing with, it's the problem of trying to weigh up God's character from a distance. At least that's Job's problem here. Bildad's problem is a little bit different. Bildad's problem is the problem shared by all three of the friends. Their theories just do not fit with reality. Bildad speaks first here, so we will listen to him first. In chapter 8, he says to Job, God's justice is a simple system. Chapter 8, verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Remember that Job in chapter 7 has insisted on his integrity. He has refused to admit to any hidden sin. And that makes Bildad angry. Why? Because Bildad believes if Job doesn't deserve the stuff that has happened to him, that would mean God is perverting justice. And God never does that. Is Bildad right? Does God ever pervert justice? Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, God's spokesman Moses says this about God and his character. He is the rock. His works are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. That's pretty clear. And we could quote lots of other places where the Bible says exactly the same thing. So Bildad is right that God does not pervert justice. But let's look how Bildad applies that truth in verse 4. He says to Job, When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Chapter 1 described how Job's children were killed. All ten of them on the same day. While they were having a birthday party together, a mighty wind struck the house and it collapsed on them. Bildad here points to that event and he says, because they died, they must have sinned. God would not let that happen to people who were in the right with him. That would be, Bildad says, perverting justice. So their untimely death must have been a punishment for sin. Bildad not only believes God is a God of justice, He also believes God's justice works on a very simple system. It's a system where bad things only happen to bad people. If something bad happens to you, that means you're bad. And the flip side is, if good things happen to you, that means you're good. As Bildad sees it, God's justice works like a bubblegum machine. You drop a coin in the bubblegum machine and some chewy sweetness is going to pop into your hand. 
According to Bildad, that's what God's world is like. Put some goodness into the system and some blessing will arrive in your life. Put some evil into the system and you can be sure something rotten will arrive in your life. If it didn't work that way, Bildad says God would be perverting justice. And so having passed judgment in Job's kids, now Bildad gives his advice to Job. He says, you're obviously not quite as sinful as your kids, Job, since you're still alive. That means you still have the opportunity to get your suffering fixed. Verse 5. If you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rise himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Turn yourself around, Job. Clean up your act and watch God's blessings fall like bubble gum from heaven. Do good and good things will happen to you. Your life will get awesome in no time. And in the rest of the chapter, Bildad says he's just passing on some good old-fashioned wisdom. In verse 8 he says, Ask the former generations. They'll agree with me. What I'm telling you is time-tested wisdom. God's justice is always obvious. He will never allow truly blameless people to suffer. He'll never, never allow genuine evildoers to have success. Now this is very similar to what we heard earlier from Eliphaz. And as we noticed with Eliphaz, the friends are saying things that are close enough to the truth for them to sound convincing. So where has Bildad gone wrong? Well, we've seen the Bible as a whole insists that God is just. But it does not promise his justice is always going to be obvious. The fact is there are many events in this world that call God's justice into question. There are circumstances that cause us to wonder about his justice. From our perspective, often, maybe most of the time, there are so many loose ends to what we see. There are so many pieces of the puzzle that don't seem to fit. Job's own life is one of those pieces that don't seem to fit. He does not deserve what has happened to him. And that tells us God's justice is not a simple system. It does not work like a bubblegum machine. Bildad is wrong. But that doesn't mean Bildad's teaching has gone away. It's still doing the rounds today. You may have heard the saying, you only get out what you put in. That's Bildad. Or what about the TV preacher who says, text your money to this number while I'm praying so you can get in on the blessing. Or the sign that I saw in a different church 
reminding church members to send in their tithes while they were on holiday so they wouldn't miss out on a blessing. All of that supposes that God runs the world like a bubblegum machine. But as we read the Bible and as we observe the world, it's pretty clear God's justice doesn't operate that way. His government of this world is much more complex than that. Living a holy life does not guarantee that blessings will keep dropping on you. Living an evil life does not guarantee disasters will keep falling on you. Sending in your tithes while you're on holiday does not guarantee you'll have a good holiday. In fact, giving 100% of your income still wouldn't guarantee a good holiday. That seems like a very obvious point. But we do forget it sometimes. We get frustrated because we expect the world to operate like a slot machine. I married a Christian. So how did my marriage end up like this? I took my kids to church. So how did they turn out like this? I've been honest and hardworking. I have honored God at work. So why didn't I get that promotion? I put my coin in the slot. So where's my bubble gum? If we expect God to run the world that way, we are going to be sorely disappointed with God. That's not because he is disappointing. It's because we have the wrong expectations. His works are perfect, but they're not a simple machine. So they won't always look perfect to us. That is what Job faces up to in chapter 9. Bildad has made his point and Job responds to him, you talk to me about God's system of justice, but I'm not so sure about his system or his justice. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then Job replied, indeed, I know that this is true, but how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? In the context here, I know this is true, means I always thought what you've just said was true. Or I used to know it was true, but now I'm not so sure. The rest of the chapter makes it clear that's what Job means. His situation is causing him to question God's justice. Job knows that he's blameless before God. He knows it, and we know it because we've read the beginning of the book. But God seems to be treating Job like he's guilty. And from here down to verse 31, we have a description of God as he seems to Job. From Job's vantage point. Job can't see God face to face, but this is his impression of God. Put together from what Job can see. 
And he says, God seems like an all-powerful troublemaker. Verse 4. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun, and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens, and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear, and Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. Job says, when I look at this world, I cannot ever doubt God's power. But I have some questions about how God uses his power. He seems to be a troublemaker. Verse 6, he kicks over the mountains. Sorry, verse 5. Verse 6, he rattles the earth around. Verse 7, he makes the sun go black. As far as I can see, God seems more interested in disorder than in order. And verse 11, he never shows himself. I can't get my sights on him. So verse 12, when he snatches stuff away from me, there's nothing I can do about it. In verse 13, Job mentions the cohorts of Rahab. Twice before in this book, we've heard him mention mythical sea monsters. Apparently Rahab is another one of those, representing the forces of evil. And here Job says, God is angry with the cohorts of Rahab. And he's treating me like I'm one of them. From where I'm standing... From what I am able to see, God seems like an all-powerful troublemaker. And what's more, Job says, he seems unapproachable and unfair. Verse 14, how then could I dispute with him? How could I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. He would not let me catch my breath, but would overwhelm me with misery. If it is a matter of strength, he is mighty. And if it is a matter of justice, who can challenge him? Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Today, organizations all have some kind of complaints procedure. They have some way that people can address their issues to the relevant authorities. But here Job says, I don't think God has a complaints procedure. Even if I were to be able to stand before him, I wouldn't get a hearing. He wouldn't listen. He'd blow me away. He'd crush me and overwhelm me. Verse 20, even if I were innocent, is better translated, though I am innocent. 
There's no doubt about Job's innocence. But he says, if I somehow got to make my case to God, I'd just go to pieces before his overwhelming strength. Instead of pointing out that all this isn't fair, I'd be so terrified I'd end up condemning myself. While my knees were knocking together, my mouth would blurt out that I'm guilty. And so, verse 22, it is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? As far as I can see, Job says, God doesn't treat his friends and his enemies any differently. He destroys the blameless and the wicked. And here's my evidence, Job says, whenever governments are corrupt, when judges dish out injustice, who stands behind that? Yes, I know there are human decisions involved, there are evil human intentions But ultimately, the sovereign God stands behind it all. None of it could happen without his permission. What does all this tell us? It tells us we cannot make accurate judgments about God's justice just by looking at the world around us. Much of the time, if we're going to assess God's justice by listening to the news, then his justice will be pretty hard to see. His love and concern for his people will be pretty hard to find. Job's problem is that he is not face to face with God. He's trying to make judgments about God from a distance. Job can't see God, but he can see God's world. And it doesn't look very fair. It does not seem to point to a God who's concerned. Is there any way forward for Job? Well, in verse 27 he says, trying to forget my complaint doesn't work. Plastering on a smile doesn't do any good. That just bottles up my frustration. And in verse 30 he says, scrubbing even harder at my life won't solve the problem. I know it wasn't sin that brought this suffering into my life. So slaughtering a few more bulls on the altar is not going to fix it. Repenting of stuff I didn't do is not going to fix it. And then Job says, I can only think of one way forward. But it's almost too far-fetched for me to mention. I'm trying to make sense of God from a distance. I'm trying to sense his care from a distance. And I can't. And so here is my impossible hope. Someone to bring us together. Verse 32. Speaking of God. 
He is not a mere mortal like me, that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. In verse 32, Job says, God is too different. He's not like me. He's too far away. He's high above us. If only there was a go-between. Someone to represent me to God and represent God to me. Someone to bring us together. Literally, someone to place his hand on both of us. As Job searches for a solution, that is the picture he comes up with. Someone who belongs in heaven and on earth. Someone who could bridge the distance between God and man. Someone to show us the smiling face of God and the love of God. Someone who could take away God's rod from us. Someone who could take away the terror of standing in his presence. If there was someone like that, wouldn't it prove God's care? Wouldn't it show God is for his creation? Wouldn't it show he has a larger plan? Wouldn't it show that what looks like chaos to us is not chaos to him? But, Job says, it's just a dream. How could that happen? And if we were to read on, which we're not going to do, into chapter 10, we would find that Job slides backwards from that. He pictures it, but he slides away into near total despair again. At this point, a mediator just seems like an impossible hope. But what if it were true? What if it came true? As we read on in the Bible, we find it did come true. God sent his son to bring God and man face to face. His son became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The one who belonged in heaven came to live on earth. And on the cross, he put his hand on both. He brought together the Father in heaven and his people here on earth. When it comes to knowing God, we will not get very far just by looking at this world. We need to know the mediator God sent to this world. When it comes to God's goodness and God's concern, we probably won't see that very often in the news. 
We may not see it very often in our own circumstances. But we see it clearly on the cross. The cross tells us we are not condemned to deal with God from a distance. We deal with him in the person of Jesus Christ. And when it comes to God's justice, the cross shows us how that works as well. Jesus suffered unjustly on the cross. He did it so we could be forgiven. When we trust in his sacrifice, God declares us blameless. The cross was a great mercy to you and me. But it was not fair in any sense for Jesus. His just reward came at the end. It came after much suffering. And when you and I commit to follow Jesus, we are not promised that this life will be fair. We are promised that in the end, God will reward his good and faithful servants. So when you and I wonder what God's doing, maybe we wonder that a lot. When we find ourselves surrounded by all kinds of masses and unfairness, let's not make those things the measure of God's goodness. Let's look to the cross. And there we will see his goodness up close. In a moment, we're going to look at that goodness again as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we remember his body broken for us and his blood poured.